if you were living with the love of your life on a beautiful Christmas tree farm. You're from a small town and everybody knows everybody. You're known as everyone's grandparents and people love you. You have a big family, you have a great marriage, and you just love your life. But little do you know, someone will come along and be so greedy that they will cut it short just to get your fortune. Hello, my fellow divers, and welcome back to another episode of Crime Diver. We take a deep dive into crime. I'm your host, Lexi. Thank you so much for listening and watching. If you're new, welcome to the water. We're so happy to have you. If you're returning, welcome back to the water. We missed you, and thank you for coming back to take another deep dive into crime with us. Please be sure to like, comment, share, subscribe, and make sure you check out our episode description for some very important links. Today we are continuing with our Christmas-themed videos, and this case is so heartbreaking. I can't even explain it. When I was doing the research for it, I got emotional a few times. So I think I got it all out. I don't think I'm going to cry during this video. I'll try not to, but it's one of the most heartbreaking cases I've ever heard. We are going to be talking about the brutal murders of Ed and Minnie Marin. But with that, let's get right into the case. Wilhelmina, or Minnie Kerpes, was born on Christmas Day of 1901. She was born in Roseland, Nebraska. Her parents' names were John and Elizabeth Kerpes, and she had nine siblings. In 1923, she married a man named Aloysius Hadler, and together they had four kids. Unfortunately, he passed away in 1958, but Minnie would soon meet Edward Marin. Edward or Ed Marin was born on June 11, 1904 in Lewis County, Washington. His parents' names were John and Anna Marin and he had a brother named Joseph. Ed and Minnie got married in 1961 and although they didn't have kids of their own, Ed loved Minnie's like they were his and they were just a really great family. Together they lived on a 120 acre Christmas tree farm in Chehalis, Washington and they sold Christmas tree farms to their surrounding community. People loved Ed and Minnie. They were said to be like everyone's grandparents. They were so sweet, they were so caring, they would take anyone under their wing and they were just known as the really nice Christmas tree farmers in town. On December 19, 1985, Ed and Minnie were set to host their annual couple's Christmas party for people at their church. And one couple arrived for the party and they knocked on the door, but they realized that Ed and Minnie were not answering. And pretty soon, this couple realized that Ed and Minnie's 1969 Chrysler was gone. So they were like, wait a minute, where are they? They're not home. And this wasn't like Ed and Minnie to just not be home and not tell anybody they were. So this couple decided to call Minnie's son's wife. Now Minnie had a son named Dennis Hadler and we're gonna talk about him a little bit later. But this couple decided to call his wife to say, hey, you know, where are Ed and Minnie? We're at their house for the Christmas party and they're not here. So Dennis's wife says, you know what? Let me find out. I'll talk to the family and see what's going on. But word got around the family pretty quickly that Ed and Minnie were nowhere to be found. Nobody knew where they were. So the family decided to head to the house and check things out for themselves. Now they were able to get inside the home, I'm assuming because they were family, they were able to have a key. And when they get inside, they see bank statements that Ed and Minnie normally kept in shoeboxes just scattered about all over the floor. And it looked really, really weird. But probably the most troubling piece of evidence that the family found was Minnie's purse. Her purse was still in the house when behind the couch and they knew that Minnie would never leave the house willingly without her purse. So they figured it was time to call 911 and report them missing. 
Now this was really scary for the family because Ed and Minnie were in their 80s and you really don't want your 80 year old parents or grandparents missing not knowing where they are. I mean, you don't want anybody missing period but for it to be an elderly person it adds a heightened sense of fear. Police first thought that Ed and Minnie were kidnapped and held for ransom for money because like I said, they owned a very successful Christmas tree farm and everybody in town knew that they were the Christmas tree farmers. But they also wondered if Ed and Minnie were being held for ransom because of their son, Dennis. Remember I mentioned him earlier. Dennis Hadler owned one of the biggest logging companies in the Northwest region called Dennis Hadler Logging. So he had a lot of money and people knew exactly who he was. Police wondered, maybe they're being held captive so that way they could get money from Dennis. So at that moment, everyone thought that, okay, they may still be alive. We just have to hurry up and go get them. In the meantime, they told the public to be on the lookout for Ed and Minnie as well as their 1969 Chrysler. Early the next morning on the 20th, police received a call from an employee at the Yardbirds shopping mall in Chehalis saying that there was a car parked in their parking lot that matched the description of Ed and Minnie's car. Police immediately respond to the scene to see if this is actually Ed and Minnie's car. Now when they get there, there's frost and ice all over the windows and the officers didn't want to touch the windows and leave prints just in case they were contaminating any evidence. So one of the officers decides to blow on the window and kind of clear some of the ice a little bit and when they do this they look inside the window and they see blood all over the seats and on one of the car doors. They also found a red blanket covering the seat and bullet holes left behind from shots that appear to have been fired inside the car. Once again a very troubling sign that Ed and Minnie were not okay was the fact that police found Ed's hat on the car floor. This hat was a hat that he wore everywhere. He took it everywhere with him. And similar to Minnie's purse, he would have never left anywhere without it willingly. They also found cigarette butts in the car, which was pretty alarming because Ed and Minnie did not smoke. So this meant that somebody else had to have been in there with them. Police checked the trunk to see if Ed and Minnie were in there, but they weren't. But at this point, they knew that something horrible had happened given the amount of blood that was found in the car. So they knew they had to act pretty quickly and find Ed and Minnie. If they were alive, they lost a great deal of blood and they need to be cared for immediately. Police and family members go on an extensive search of the area to find Ed and Minnie. But on Christmas Eve of 1985, police receive a call from a man who was driving down a very rural road in a wooded area in Chehalis, Washington, saying that he believed that he saw a CPR dummy lying on the side of the road. But after he got out and checked, he realized that it was a body. And this body in fact belonged to 81 year old Minnie Marin and just a few feet away from her was 83-year-old Ed Marin. Both had been shot with a sawed-off 12-gauge shotgun. Minnie had been shot in the left shoulder and the neck, and Ed had been shot directly in the middle of his back. When police arrived at the scene, they found drag marks going from the road all the way to where Ed and Minnie were found, meaning that their bodies had been dragged by whoever had done this and left where they were found. And given the fact that there was no blood spatter at the scene, police believed that they were most likely killed in their car before it was driven back to the Yardbirds parking lot and they were just left there. This was so tragic for Ed and Minnie's family. They couldn't believe that their beloved parents and grandparents were found this way. I mean, it was just 
awful. Could you imagine elderly people in your family who you all just look up to and respect and they're the patriarch and the matriarch and for them to have been treated that way and found that way, I would be so angry and so heartbroken. My grandparents are actually around their age so I literally could not imagine the tragedy and the loss that this family had to have felt. The public was absolutely horrified by the deaths of Ed and Minnie because they were so loved in the community and people couldn't imagine why someone would want to hurt them. And when you see that people would treat elderly people this way, it's like these guys are just roaming around. I mean, they would do anything to anybody if they would do something like this to such beloved people. Now, despite the blood evidence and finding Ed and Minnie's bodies, police really didn't have much to go off of. There wasn't really a lot of forensic evidence because keep in mind, this is the 80s, so they really didn't have the technology to properly assess it. Not to mention, there were no fingerprints on Ed and Minnie's car or in their house that belonged to anybody outside of their family. So police at first were really trying to find foreign DNA because they figured there was no way a family member could do this right, but they didn't find any other evidence or any other fingerprints other than belonging to family members. But what they did find was a bank receipt in Ed's pocket and they pulled it out and they went straight to the bank to figure out if they could tell them a little bit more about this transaction. And according to the teller, Ed actually called the bank on December 19th, the day Ed and Minnie went missing. And he requested $8,500, which is kind of a lot to pull out all at once, but Ed had the money in his account. I mean, like I said, he was very financially successful along with Minnie. And according to the teller, Ed arrived to the bank that day, but the money still wasn't ready. So he decided to go back in his car and wait for the money to be ready. And when it was, the teller tried to come back out to get him. But as she walked up to Ed Minnie's car, Ed got out very quickly, almost as if he didn't want her to walk up to the car and potentially see who was inside. Now the teller said that she did see people in there, but she couldn't really make out who it was. And police wanted to know, why did Ed withdraw so much money at once? And if he did it for somebody, who would even know that he had it? And this is when police started looking more at family members. On December 28th, nine days after Ed and Minnie were murdered, their funeral was held and so many people in the community attended because this was just a really tragic loss to this small town. Minnie's son, Dennis, put his hand on his mother's casket and promised both her and Ed that he was going to find who did this to them if it was the last thing he did. Meanwhile, police were at the funeral in order to see if the suspect had possibly showed up. That's something that suspects do. They'll actually go to the funeral of someone that they killed. Not really sure why. I don't know if they get some sort of satisfaction out of it, but it's actually a pretty common thing. So police were there trying to find out if this guy had shown up. By this point, they were pretty convinced that it was a family member that may have done this to Ed and Minnie. One, because of the amount of money that Ed withdrew and only family would have known that he was rich. They also noticed that there were no signs signs of forced entry at Ed and Minnie's home, meaning that they most likely knew the person that came to do this to them because they didn't have to break in. And like I said, the only fingerprints that were found at their home and in their car belonged to family members. Police decided to focus on one of Ed and Minnie's grandsons, Mike Hadler, who was actually the son of Dennis. Now Mike had had a bit of a history with law enforcement because he was known to drink, have a temper, and then get into a lot of fights. He also smoked, which was key because there were cigarette butts found in Ed and Minnie's car and they didn't smoke. They also questioned another grandson named Rodney as well, but they couldn't find anything solid on both of them. But Mike has been very vocal about how frustrating it was that police were questioning him because he absolutely 
loved his grandparents and would have never thought about doing anything to harm them. So he was very hurt by the fact that police were looking at him in the first place. By New Year's Eve, almost two weeks after Ed and Minnie were murdered, police received a tip from two women that were at the Yardbirds shopping mall in the parking lot around that time, saying that they had seen a man running towards the woods holding a rifle wrapped in cloth. And they said this looked very odd to them. Another man also put in a tip to police saying that he saw a similar man wiping down Ed and Minnie's car. The police decided to create a composite sketch based on the description that these witnesses gave. And according to them, this man had dark brown wavy hair with a small beard and he was wearing a stocking cap and a green army coat. Of course, as soon as police released the sketch, people started calling left and right, saying that they saw a guy who looked like the sketch. And police were taking pictures of everybody who even remotely matched the description, but they never found anything solid. By 1990, four years after the murders, there were still no leads or suspects in the case of Ed and Minnie Marin. But in April of that year, police received a call from a man saying that his brother, a man named Scott Coulter, had bragged about killing an elderly couple in Chehalis, Washington. Apparently this guy, Scott Coulter, actually used to be married to one of Ed and Minnie's granddaughters. And he was going around bragging about killing them and then taking their money after the fact. So police wasted no time figuring out who this guy was and trying to come up with a plan on how they could get him to admit what had happened to Ed and Minnie. They also found that he had a history of burglary and substance charges, so he seemed like he could be a pretty solid suspect. So by November of that year, the police actually set up a sting operation and they went undercover as mob members. Apparently Scott was showing some interest in getting into the mob, but in order to do that, he had to be initiated in by telling them about a crime that he had committed. So that way they could know he was down. Now they hinted at the fact that they had heard that Scott had possibly killed Ed and Minnie Marin. But these undercover police officers who were posing as mob members told Scott that he had to give them an exact detail about the case so that way they could prove that it was him. And Scott told the story. He said that he got Ed and Minnie in the car, took them to the Yardbirds shopping mall, and he motioned his hands like this to indicate that he shot and killed them. But when they asked him what weapon he used, Scott said he used a 22 caliber weapon, which police knew was incorrect immediately. Ed and Minnie were killed with a sawed off 12 gauge shotgun. So they knew that Scott was lying and they pretty much just ditched him, got rid of him, and they were back to square one. I guess what little information Scott did have about their murders, he got from the local paper, but the fact that he got the weapon wrong and he could have gotten that right by reading the paper. So clearly he didn't really put too much effort into the spy and police knew instantly that he just wasn't the guy. It's really sad that this much time passed without the family finding out what happened to Ed and Minnie and they could just be living and walking amongst who did this to them. And this person's just walking free and facing no consequences. I mean, I couldn't imagine somebody doing this to my family member. And then you go to the grocery store and you're probably wondering, could that person be in here right now? I mean, are they here? Are they around? Are they looking at me knowing what they've done and they think it's some big cruel joke? I would be so angry. But their family was pretty much torn apart by this tragedy and they were never the same. One of Ed and Minnie's granddaughters named Denise, she was actually newly married and pregnant with twins at the time Ed and Minnie were murdered. And she was so gutted by their deaths that she actually went into early labor and ended up losing both of her twins. When I heard that, I broke down. I mean, to see the effect, the ripple effect of such a horrible tragedy and how it invades every aspect of your life. I mean, it's just horrible. And some heartless monster just did this to them and literally tore apart 
their entire family. In 1992, a tip actually led police to a woman named Robin Rife, who was the ex-wife of a man named Rick Rife. And now Rick Rife and his brother Greg were actually local criminals in the Chehalis area. And they were actually pretty feared by the public. People were terrified of them. They were known substance dealers and just local criminals. But they did end up moving to Alaska in 1987, two years after Ed and Minnie were murdered. But Robin, she had a lot of information to give police. Now at the time she spoke to police, she was actually in prison, but they went to go speak to her anyway to see what she knew. And according to Robin, she said the day that Ed and Minnie were murdered, Rick got her to drop him and his brother Greg off a mile away from their home. And the following day, they called her and asked her to pick them up. Now Robin recalled seeing a body, but she wasn't 100% sure but she said even if she was, she wasn't gonna say anything because she was terrified of them. Now for whatever reason, police decided not to use Robin's account of things because they said she was in prison so they didn't know if they should believe her. But you knew she was in prison when you went to talk to her. So why were you gonna talk to her anyway if you weren't gonna believe a word she was saying because she was in prison? So why did you even talk to her? That part really frustrated me because it was such a good lead and they didn't even use it. Three years later, Robin died unexpectedly effectively in 1995 after she had been released from prison. By May 2004, the case had been unsolved for nearly 20 years. And this is a really, really long time to not know what happened to your loved one. But a new detective was in town and his name was Bruce Kinsey. Now he actually grew up in Chehalis, Washington and he was about 10 years old when Ed and Minnie were murdered. And he actually knew them. He said that Ed and Minnie were just really sweet, great people. They treated everyone like family. So he had a personal connection to the case and he made it his business to reopen the investigation and do what he could to solve their murders. He decided to call up witnesses who said that they had seen Ed driving to the bank on December 19th, the day he and Minnie were killed. And he wanted to find out where everybody saw him and what they saw. And he actually created a map of all the places that people said they saw Ed and Minnie's car. Witnesses said that Ed was driving and Minnie was in the passenger seat and that there was a man in the back seat wearing an army green coat, similar to the one that the women described as the man that they saw in the Yardbirds shopping mall parking lot, holding the rifle that was covered in the cloth. So now there's a consistent description and a bit of a connection. Detective Kimsey decided to look at workers at the Christmas tree farm that Ed and Minnie used to own instead of looking at family members. And the reason why he did this was because he felt like a family member would have known that Ed and Minnie had a lot more money. So they would have asked for way more than a little under $9,000. But if you worked at their Christmas tree farm, you knew that they had money. You just probably didn't know how much. So they started going back and finding all these Christmas tree farmers, as well as pictures that were taken of them at the time, if they matched the description that was given by witnesses. But what Bruce Kimsey did was that he decided to take these pictures and make them into color. Because remember at the time it was 1985. So I guess the pictures they took were in black and white. When he turned the pictures to color and then he showed them to witnesses, one witness was actually able to recognize one of the guys and point him out as being someone that they were called seeing at Ed and Minnie's house the day they were taken. By November of 2005, the following year, police were still investigating the case. And on November 12th, Mike Hadler, remember I mentioned earlier, police were looking at him as a little bit of a suspect. His father owned that really big logging company. Well, he actually was in Vancouver, Washington, getting ready to go deer hunting. And he had actually stopped on the way there and he ran into an old friend named Jake Shriver. And they knew each other from back in the day in high school. And they were just catching up 
hanging out trying to figure out how the other was doing and Jake would always ask Mike how his grandparents case was going and just ask me if there were any updates as they continue speaking Jake just decides to say I can't do this anymore I gotta tell you something and Mike was like what's going on what are you telling me and Jake just says I know what happened to your grandparents According to Jake on December 19th of 1985, he was 17 years old at the time and his mother was driving him down Highway 12 to a dentist appointment. But as they were driving, an old car pulled out in front of them and it was going pretty slow. So Jake's mother decided to pass the car. But as she passed it, she turned and looked and saw that Ed and Minnie were inside. And of course, being from that area, they knew them. So they both kind of just wave at Ed and Minnie and say hi, but Ed and Minnie don't wave back. Jake says that he looks in the back seat and he sees two men. And these men were none other than Rick and Greg Rife, the two local criminal brothers who were known around town and very feared. Now Jake thought it was a little bit odd that they were in the car with them, but they didn't say anything. They just passed the car and Jake went on to his dentist appointment. A few days later, Greg Rife just randomly showed up at Jake's house and he said, did you tell anybody what you saw? And Jake's like, no, I didn't. And he was telling the truth. He really hadn't said a word about seeing him and his brother in the back seat of Minnie and Ed's car. And Greg said, if you tell anybody the same thing that happened to them is going to happen to you and your family. Jake was of course absolutely terrified and he wasn't going to say a word. But just to be sure, Rick and Greg would drive past Jake's family home almost every day to intimidate them and remind them that they better keep their mouth shut. Jake said that he kept this to himself for years because he was terrified that Rick and Greg were going to kill his family. Because if they could kill two sweet elderly people like Ed and Minnie, then they would waste no time doing the same thing to Jake. Now, of course, he tells Mike and Mike is completely floored. He can't believe that this is what happened. And I believe Mike actually knew Rick and Greg from around the way as well because they actually used to work for Ed and Minnie on their Christmas tree farm. So they would have known that they had a little bit of change in the bank. After telling Mike this, Jake decides that it's time to go to the police and share this information that he's been holding onto for over 20 years. And after police heard his account of things, they were pretty certain that they had their guys. Police believe that on the night of December 18th, 1995, Rick and Greg showed up to Ed and Minnie's house with rifles and they decided to knock on the door. And because they worked for Ed and Minnie, they were let in, which is why there was no sign of forced entry. And immediately they go in the house, they order Ed and Minnie to find any kind of money or bank statements before kidnapping them from their home and forcing Ed to drive to the bank and withdraw the $8,500. After Rick and Greg get this money, they order Ed to drive down to this very rural area and it's there that they shoot and kill Ed and Minnie inside the car before dragging their bodies to the side of the road and leaving them there. They then take the car to the Yardbirds Mall parking lot. They leave it there, they wipe it down, and then they take the rifle and run into the woods. Two years later, Rick and Greg moved to Alaska and they were living off of the money that they had gotten from Ed and Minnie. So wow, to finally have suspects and know what most likely happened to Ed and Minnie was just crazy for the detectives and investigators and the family to come to terms with. I mean, this case has been unsolved for 20 years and now they pretty much know what happened to them. So of course, 
Police waste no time obtaining arrest warrants and trying to go and find Rick and Greg so they can bring them to justice once and for all. But literally the day, the day that they get the arrest warrants, police find out that Greg Reif ended up passing away at the age of 50 years old. Now this was very frustrating for investigators because they wanted both of them. They wanted to be able to bring both of them back over to Washington and have them both face the consequences for what they had done. So for one of them to have died literally the same day that they got the arrest warrants is crazy. I mean, considering the fact that this case has been unsolved for 20 years and the day that you finally get this arrest warrant, one of them die. So they were pretty frustrated with this. Greg did end up dying of natural causes, but some people wondered if somebody had actually murdered him. Mike Hadler was so angry about the death of his grandparents that once he found out from Jake that Rick and Greg were the ones who did this, he actually moved to Alaska and went looking for them. Eventually his father ended up convincing him to come home because for a second I was like, did he do it? But he didn't. But he was definitely planning on doing something. Police really wanted to arrest Rick before something happened to him. So on July 8, 2012, 27 years after Ed and Minnie were murdered, police fly all the way to King Salmon, Alaska, and they arrive at the home of 53-year-old Rick Reif. And they knock on his door and it just opens, which is again, so damn creepy. They go inside, they announce themselves as the police, and they see a man standing there with an oxygen tank. And they said that they were a little shocked to see him like this. I guess when you hear that somebody committed such a brutal murder, to look at them and see them looking so vulnerable and frail and sick, it was just a little bit unexpected of them. But this was their guy. And they said that they had a warrant for his arrest for the murders of Ed and Minnie Marin. And all Rick said was, looks like I'm gonna need my medication. He didn't seem shocked, he didn't seem surprised, and he didn't seem the least bit remorseful. And as he was being arrested, Detective Kimsey actually asked him, did you ever think after all these years, police were gonna come knocking on your door? And he says that Rick just looked at him and said, well, yeah. So it was almost like he knew that it was gonna happen eventually, he just didn't know when. But it finally happened. By 2013, Rick Reif was convicted of the kidnapping, robbery, and first-degree murders of Ed and Minnie Marin, and he was sentenced to 103 years in prison, meaning that he's never getting out of jail. To this day, we don't know which brother actually pulled the trigger, or if one brother killed Ed and one brother killed Minnie. We really don't know because Rick wouldn't talk, which was kind of expected. The fact of the matter is, one of the people involved is now going to spend the rest of his life in jail. And after 27 years, the family finally has a sense of closure. Ed and Minnie's son, Dennis Hadler, passed away on December 28th, 2021 at the age of 94 years old, 36 years to the day that his parents were buried. And it's so great that he was able to find justice for his parents before he passed away. And he was able to keep the promise that he made to both of them the day of their funeral, that he was going to find out who did this to his parents. Ed and Minnie's family has never been the same since their deaths and it's really sad that this whole family pretty much got torn apart by what happened to them. No amount of justice will ever bring them back 
but at least the people who did this are no longer freely walking this earth. This case is really upsetting and I'm not gonna lie, it was pretty hard to cover. I have a soft spot for older people, mostly because of my grandparents. So to know that Ed and Minnie were treated this way and their family has to live with knowing that, it just breaks my heart. They were the last people to ever deserve something like this to happen to them. They did nothing wrong. They were the sweetest, nicest, kindest, caring souls. So for them to have died in this way is just unfair. But with that, we're gonna go ahead and wrap up today's episode. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you so much for listening and watching, and I hope to see you in the water soon.